This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska. Welcome back to the show. In lieu of, I guess, the new James Bond movie being pushed back. In the Black Widow, in the Black Widow movie. Black, yeah, right. That's getting pushed back too. Well, yeah, um, yeah. So, I th- so I think in lieu of those movies, um, we decided to uh, to do something that doesn't really get talked about that much. And uh, you know, while you watch a lot of movies that are spy thrillers, and there's a lot of books and and whatnot about famous spies, and you know, there's actually a lot of famous female spies in history. Mm-hmm. So we decided we'll uh, we'll kind of cover them um, today. So we're gonna try to center this conversation on famous female American spies. However, we'll also throw in some of the more famous spies from other countries and different other countries countries. from, from you know, major time eras. Obviously we're going to be looking at some revolutionary civil war, obviously world war one, a little bit world war two and cold war, and even some modern ones that uh, are actually have happened in recently. Uh, obviously that they're modern, but yeah, it, it's really what I'm um, doing a lot of the research for this. It's like it's always have like that pop culture, like we're talking about the James Bond movies and the um, Black Widow movies. So you have that popular culture idea of like the spies, but the reality, the reality of the female spies is actually extends far beyond anything that like the movies were kind of showing. So the first one is uh, the famous Agent Three Fifty Five or Agent Three Five Five in the American Revolutionary War. All we really know is that she was the code name Three Fifty Five. And she was part of Washington, George Washington uh, spy ring called the Culper spy ring. And that spy ring was out of uh, New York. We actually still don't really know this woman's identity. What we do know is that Agent 355 was instrumental in catching the one and only uh, Benedict Arnold. Oh, really? She was apparently very close to British major. And it was this British major who kind of had the secret dealing with Benedict Arnold. And Benedict Arnold was trying to sell plans to West Point. Yes. Uh, before it was a military academy, it was a fort, essentially, that you know that guarded the entrance to the Hudson. And They're Very important. And he was angry because he was, wasn't getting promoted as fast as he thought. Yep. So she was kind of apparently really friendly with him. And there's, you know, historians are still trying to figure this out. Like I said, they don't really know exactly who she is. But there is this idea that she was either like his lover or there's also now some historians are claiming that maybe potentially she actually was Miss Shippen, um, a.k.a. Uh, Benedict Arnold's wife, oh. because apparently Benedict Arnold's wife was having a kind of an affair with this British major. So we don't know. However, historians, for the most part, believe that she's the one that passed information to Washington that Major John Andrew was in New York meeting with Benedict Arnold. That's how they caught him. Once <laughs> Benedict Arnold was captured, he supposedly figured out that she was the spy, well, whomever she was. And she was captured and she was thrown on one of the infamous ships, a prison ships that they had off okay. the, you know, New York Harbor, which was apparently they were apparently really, really bad. So, yeah, so that was Agent 355. And then there's also another, you know, female spy from this time period, and and that's Anna Smith Strong. She was also part of the Culper spy ring, which directly reported to George Washington. She supposedly worked alongside Agent Three Five Five, 
she had a very interesting uh, communication system. So this entire spy ring, uh, there was one particular person that would bring their boat to Long Island. And like whenever he dropped his boat, he would bring information in and then bring information back from New York. The boat had six different drops so they, he would never be caught. So he always stopped at six different places on the river. And the way that Miss uh, Anna Smith-Strong participated in this is she would actually put out her laundry on her line every time that there was a delivery on like Thursday or Friday. And the amount of clothes that she would hang on the line was corresponding to which drop site this guy was bringing his boat to so this other guy could bring him the information to smuggle out of New York. Put up three pairs of pants on the line. That means he was at drop number three. Uh, so you no know, one caught on to that, apparently. You also have another... But I'm, you're inter- I really have to say, like, yeah, again, like, these are pretty interesting because they're ones that, if we didn't really do this sort of reason, they're not names really in the history books or names that you're really going to find unless you're doing these side research projects. And, yeah. But yet they're important. They, they have major impacts. That's what I was, when I'm reading about some of the ones that I was looking up, they have major impact on major events that took place. And they're really the reason that they weren't talked about, or their names aren't synonymous in history is really because they're women and because they were spies too. And they kind of just, you know, in the shadows behind the scenes. Yeah, no, Anna, Anna Smith-Strong was instrumental in essentially her, yeah. giving George Washington detailed information about troop movements uh, in New York City and the vicinity, you know, and ultimately he was able to chase the British out of New York. Two other ones that I think I should mention when it comes to American Revolution. One is Ann Bates, and she's interesting because she actually I did see her. spied. Yeah, she spied for the British. So she acted, she was a, essentially, she was a loyalist. We, we know that now through history. But she lived in Philadelphia. She was a school teacher. What she did is she kind of posed as uh, this peddler, like selling, you know, used, supposed like leftover knives, needles, dry goods, anything that American military soldiers might need. Under the cover of the fact that she was this innocent school teacher, she would go into soldiers' you know, camps and she would sell all these things. But really what she was doing is she was, she was writing down information that she would later on pass on to the British. There's no real information as to whether she was instrumental in any, anything really hurtful to the Patriot cause. However, she is the only British American spy that we know of from no. this conflict. Again, it's probably, know, there, had to be, there had to be others, but yeah, these are the ones that kind of their names survived, yeah. And then there's Lydia Darragh, um, D-A-R-R-A-G-H. I assume the H is silent, Darragh. This one, this lady has a really interesting story. She kind of employed all her sons to help her with her little spy ring. The British officers started using a large room on the second story of her home. Uh, for military meetings, and that's usually what happened. If you had a nice home in a vicinity, and the, the redcoats came, they just—that's a quartering yeah. act. That's a quartering yeah. act, literally. Yeah, yeah. So they repossessed her house, and and they lived upstairs in her house. So what she did is, she kind of capitalized on the opportunity, and she started gaining information and listen in, listening in on all these military meetings that they had. <laughs> the way she did it, she would actually hide in like a small closet, and as these guys were filing into the room, she would stay in the closet. And just literally take notes on everything that these soldiers were saying about battle plans and so on. And then what she would do is she would code those messages of all these battle plans on like little tiny pieces of fabric, which she would then sew on to buttons, like on a coat. 
because back then the buttons were plastic. They actually were like made out of material. So she would put these messages in the button and then she would cover the button with the material, sew it on the back and then sew the buttons onto her teenage son's shirts or whether they were vests. And it was her sons would then go and visit the old, his, you know, their older brothers. And then they would take these buttons and present them, you know, with these clothes, they would bring them over to the Patriots and their soldier camps. And that's how she would bring over this information. She employed all her sons and she would sew it into the buttons, which I thought was kind of interesting. These, these four are kind of the ones that history remembers from American revolution, but the civil war definitely seemed to be the uh, Confederate paradise when it came to. Yeah. I found a couple on, on both obviously. And you can, I'm sure there's many, many more that neither one of us were able to find during our research. But the conf- they definitely, I saw there was a lot of confederacy because they had that strong feelings, you know, about the South, about their cause, and their husbands were all away fighting. Not that that wasn't happening in the North, but the North had a lot more younger men or men who were not yet wed, or if they did, it was just a different dynamic, different population than what you had in the South. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these women who married these older men at younger ages were just in doctrine with you know, the Southern Belle type of personality, that Southern Belle, the whole idea of having, of being a Southern Belle, being a lady and things of that nature. And they really played that up. And because they were seen as that, that's one reason why they were able to get a lot of the access and get this information that they were able to get. A lot of times they're caught and then they're let go simply because, well, you're a woman and we we, we don't want to throw women in jail. Like that was also one thing that I've noticed quite a bit as going through this. Yeah, but one of the big ones that I would talk about from the Civil War era was a, a young woman known as Rose Greenhow, and she was known as Wild Rose. Okay. And she was um, known as – that was her name actually just in high society, right around Washington, D.C. She was a wife of a wealthy doctor, and it took a tragic turn in the late 1850s. Her husband died, and five of her eight children died in the 1850s. And right up before the Civil War broke out, um, she was a big supporter of the Confederate cause. And she created a big like a network of anti-union spies. And she was known as being really good at, at not only being charming, but being able to spark up conversation. And because yeah, of this, hostess, right? yeah, yeah, she was a big hostess. She would have all these parties. And that's the thing. She was in Washington, D.C. in the time, and but she was a Confederate. And she wasn't known that she was a Confederate, that she was a supporter of the Confederacy. So she was having all these diplomats and politicians and generals come over to her place. And then secretly she would pass along all of the information that she overheard or, or was able to steal. And she passed it to um, Confederate generals and other contacts from, from that area. And she actually contained in 1861, she contained a whole bunch of information about the union's army plan for Manassas, Virginia. And she actually sent her 16 year old courier into union territory with these coded messages tucked in her hair. He actually gave it to the Confederate generals and President Jefferson Davis credited her for the army's success of the, ba- of the first battle of Bull Run or the first battle of Manassas. Yeah, which is really the first battle. To, yeah, first battle of Civil War. Like they would not have been ready for that if it was not for her correspondence. But she knew about the troop movements. She knew how many troops they were going to send. And she was able to convey all that information to um, the rest of the Union soldiers. She has an interesting story. Because... Well, yeah, as it goes on. Yeah, because she winds yeah. up getting arrested. She does get arrested. Mm-hmm. And then she um, – the Alan Pickerton, right, the Pinkerton detectives – they basically come in there, they, they arrest her, and she's put on the house arrest and everything like that. But she's able to leave, escape, yeah. and then she becomes a diplomat. Like you said, they figured out she was a spy. And 
it, which another thing is kind of crazy because the first Battle of Bull Run could have ended the entire war. It should have. It should have. Yeah, yeah. The Confederates destroyed the Union soldiers and basically chased them back to Washington D.C. If the Confederate soldiers just kept on going, they would have invaded Washington D.C. First Battle of the Civil War. So. This woman, Rose Greenhow, or Wild Rose, was instrumental in that very first victory. For for Jefferson Davis and the other generals to say, listen, we don't win this battle. We don't have the success that we do without her. That's huge at the time to be giving this much credit. For for a woman. For for a woman in the 1860s. Absolutely. When the Pinkerton Agency, which is like the first, you know, government, federal agency that's formed, it's kind of like a, not a secret service, but think of it as like... I guess you're right, a detective agency. So the Pinkertons figure out that she is the spy in Washington, D.C., and all they do is just place her on house arrest. Like, yeah. what? Like, crazy. Again, it's almost the idea of not taking her seriously because she's a woman. So what happened is she gets released, you know, in 1862. Right away, she's hired as a diplomat, as you mentioned, and she's sent over to Europe to essentially get money. She meets Napoleon. She meets Queen Victoria. Yep. Now, there That's was no she meets chance. some British guy, right? Doesn't she? Yeah, meet some she meets a British guy, guy. She gets married. She publishes her memoirs. Yeah. And then she decides, All right, I'm going to come back in the 1864, back to America. As she's coming back, her um, ship gets attacked by Union forces off the coast of North Carolina. And then and she this, tra- is like a, this is like a weird story, right? The end part. Yeah. Well, she tries escaping in a rowboat, but she actually drowns because what happened was inside of her dress and her clothing, she had all these um, – she had gold like sewn into it that she was trying to smuggle in to help fund the Confederacy. Yeah. And she had all these also notes for Confederate leaders. It prevented her from being able to swim, and that's when she eventually drowned. Yeah. So her love for the Confederacy and her like loyalty to it also cost her her life. Another one I'm sure you have is Belle Boyd. Belle Boyd, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Belle, it's Belle Boyd. One, yeah. She had a crazy – I mean, again, she was also a Southern loyalist, and she was a spy for – the confederates and her story has like a very tragic beginning i mean yeah a man you know the idea is that a man invaded her home a union um, soldier yeah union soldier invaded her home yep and like tore down her confederate flag that she had and spoke offensively to her mother and bell was only like 17 we don't know the exact truth of what this soldier was attempting to do to 17 year old bell and her mother but what we do know is in retaliation and to protect herself and her mother, Bell basically took a gun and shot this Union soldier. And shot him, she, yeah. She yeah. killed him. And she was and acquitted, though. She was acquitted of the crime. After that, it was kind of like, that's when she decided, you know what? Forget this, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to do anything and everything in my power to help the Confederate cause. Yeah, her, her I think she had less love for the Confederacy than she had hate for the Union because of this soldier. That's really what it was. She just... She just wanted to somehow, whenever she, I, more stuff probably happened than what we're able to find out, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's kind of like lost to history, but she's definitely being, you know, seeing that guy and all the Union soldiers. So I'm going to get back at him mm-hmm. by punishing the entire Union. Yeah. But she was young, 17 years old. Yeah. When this took place. What, what essentially happens after that is you have very similar situation of kind of like what happened in, you know, American Revolution that you had Union soldiers that repossess her house, right? It was actually mm-hmm. in hotel. I think she stayed in a hotel. She lived in a hotel. And the Union soldiers, specifically Union you know, officers, stayed up in like the floor above her. So what she would do is she would start to eavesdrop on their meetings. And then what she would do is she would then ride through the night to Confederate forces to pass on the information that she heard. Uh, she supposedly, at one point, even started providing or giving her information directly to Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson, yeah. She eventually is caught. 
Right. They, they, they saw her doing this. Yeah. Because they're like, why is this when they, it was so obvious that was what she was doing and they caught her, but she was released a month later. They caught her again. And like, listen, you have to knock this off. And then, so after uh, being caught, they just said, all right, no, we're going to do you're banished to the South. We, we, we yep. see you in the North again. That's it. And um, so she goes, she's banished to the South, which doesn't bother her at all. But then she also following, um, following our, uh, Wild uh, Rose, she yeah. heads over to England in 1864, and she's to serve as a Confederate courier. She was intercepted by Union troops there, so she gets caught a third time. One of the naval officers, by name of Samuel Hardridge, actually falls in love with her. She's only 20 at this time, and they do get married, but uh, he mysteriously died shortly thereafter. So I don't know if we want to look too into that. She, yeah. um, she does marry him. She has, she has a child with him, and um, he dies shortly after. And then there she just kind of just stays in England for a while. She... Um, writes her memoirs, which is a big thing back then, you know, her life story. At 20 years old, she writes a memoir, right? Yeah. Um, and she becomes a pretty successful. Yeah, like, what, what would you write as, as you're 20? Years, I, 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 20, 20 like I have no idea. <laughs> I prestige this many times in Call of Duty on my PlayStation 3. I was never a Call of Duty guy, but yeah, something. I don't know, something. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, I don't know. There's video yeah. games. And at 20 years old, <laughs> I have no idea. I also, yeah, wasn't going across the Atlantic at 20. But um, yeah. she actually becomes a very su- successful um, stage actress. She does. Yes, yeah. she does turn this into a career um, afterwards. And there's a couple more from this time. And then we actually have one that Elizabeth Van Lu. She's um, a union. She yeah, she's, yeah, she's for union. But she was born in the South. I mean, yes, she's, she's the a very slave-holding, yeah. wealthy family in Richmond, Virginia. And then <laughs> it's almost like her father probably didn't think this through. But they send her over to Philadelphia to go to school. Which in itself at the time, you know, sending uh, women, young women to school, again, still kind of taboo in a sense. 1800, she goes to Philadelphia and the school has a very big Quaker influence. On her, yeah. And that's against slavery. Yeah, so she becomes an abolitionist. And when she comes back to Richmond, Virginia, her father passes like 1840s and she actually convinces her brother, right, to free the slaves. And they stay on as paid servants in Richmond, Virginia. It becomes, you know, the capital of... Confederacy, which is super unheard of and unusual, but when the war breaks out, yeah, I'm sure there's much. There's a lot of books about her, and speaking one of those interesting little like mini series or yeah. movies, something on Netflix. Because when war breaks out, her and her mother begin visiting a lot of the Union soldiers, uh, the In brutal, prison, right? the, the, the Libby prison, yeah, which is a brutal, brutal Confederate uh, prison camp. We should do a podcast on that, on like the prisons, the Confederate. The they were bringing clothes and food and medicine to them. Um, they helped men escape. They smuggled in and out letters for them, valuables. As they were doing this, a lot of the soldiers that they helped escape tell the Union so generals is what happened. So um, General Benjamin Butler recruits her as a spy. And she becomes the head of this massive spy network that's based in Richmond. A lot of her servants are helping them. Some of these other like famous female spies, um, like Mary Bowser was a very important female spy in her, um, yeah. by herself. She sent coded messages and they would do this using invisible ink. Yeah, she was like the head of this. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. They, they, they would hollow out like, um, eggs, eggs. or watermelons yeah. or any type of like yeah. fruit and vegetables. They would hollow it out and put the messages in that. Cause again, no one would, they would sew it in their clothing because no one would really convince them what was uh, going on here. And then when Richmond falls, in April 1865, she actually flies. They said she's the first house to fly the uh, American flag over her home. And then, like, the neighbors just got, like, really mad. Like, did she just, they were so angry about this. This was, like, right as soon as, you know, Virginia Falls. 
Richmond Falls. Yeah. She's she's putting up the U.S. flag and like yes, yes, like she's all pumped up about it. And everyone else is like, how dare you? And um, she winds up becoming a pariah in her own community, basically. Mm-hmm. And she becomes a postmaster general on, under Grant. Under Grant, and uh, but she winds up being in poverty because she used up all of her family's wealth during this war um, for espionage to help smuggle soldiers out, bribe people like the Confederacy. And it has a nice turn at the end of her life though, right? Well, it's one of those interesting turns because the family of a union officer she assisted during the war happened from, the, from to be, one of these, yeah, from one of these uh, prisons. That from these prison camps, but he also happened to be the grandson of Paul Revere. Yeah. Which is one of those like crazy like connections in history. You know, he's, this is Paul Revere's grandson. So he actually, he was wealthy and he finds out about this and he winds up providing for her until her death and she dies in uh, 1900, I believe. Yeah, 1900. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the last one I have, I don't know if you have any more, but the one I kind of want to mention is Harriet Tubman. Yes. Yeah. Whom I think is going to be on our currency or supposed to be over. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. You know, at least that was discussed, at least for the past five years, that she's going to be on one of our dollar bills. I Yeah, I think that was kind of postponed for a while. Yeah. So Harry Tubman is often known. I mean, if you say Harry Tubman, if you say it to a little kid, they'll be like Underground Railroad, and then they'd be like, "Was it a choo-choo train?" And you're like, "No, the Underground Railroad was not actually a railroad." Yeah. You know how many times I have to say that, even in high school, I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah." Um, it is but, it <laughs> like not. not We're trying to fix it. We're trying to fix it. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> were trying to fix it. That's right. A lot of people don't realize that she wasn't just like the most courageous Underground Railroad conductor. I mean, she would. This is a woman that escaped slavery and then risked her life every single day returning back into the South. Yeah, where she got caught. Back into the thick of things, where she would have been caught and executed. The fact that she would put herself back in danger over and over and over again. And that's kind of what she's known for. But what a lot of people don't realize that in like early uh, 1862, about a year or so into the war, she actually assembled aspiring i guess i would say that yeah sure she she had aspiring she was like the head of basically aspiring that would go into confederate lines and they would pose as servants or slaves yep and they would gather military information and slip back out yeah she because she's initially served as a nurse right and a teacher um teacher. at different northern like military camps it's where liberated slaves would be and that's where she kind of assembled in these union camps from these liberated slaves she assembled her entourage it's amazing with the fact that these people escaped slavery and then under her direction went back again not just underground railroad harriet tubman actually also conducted she's inspiring yeah i have a couple for world war ii i I mean again world war one well world war one does have she's not american 
Well, she's considered uh, the most famous one. The most famous of all the female spies. Probably the one that made that pop culture version of a spy that we know today, the female spies. Yeah. It was a Dutch-born spy. She was actually an exotic dancer, Mata Hari. And she was legendary for a lot of her close relationships to the military and political figures in Europe. Although there's some debate how much of a spy she actually was. Yeah. Um, So when World War I does break out, she basically had connections before the war, and she uses those connections during the war. And she was actually paid money by the Germans to spy on on the French. She claims that she took the money and ran away and then agreed to spy for France, became kind of like a um, double agent. But that's 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 something that, that is often debated. The French executed her as a spy. Yeah, the French are the ones that executed because they said, well, you never told us the French also tried to hire her to go spy on the Germans, and they, she never told them that she was being paid at the time to spy on them by the Germans. So the French were like, "Well, which one is it?" And they just got up. They it just tried her for that. When she says, "No, I'm not really a double agent. I'm just helping you out the whole time. I just took their money and ran away. That's why I'm telling you now." But like, like, why didn't you tell us sooner? And that was basically tipped off from the British intelligence. So the French arrested her. They accused her of being this double agent, and she was executed by firing squad. The whole point of this famous is that she refused to wear a blindfold and she was like staring at her executioners without flinching. So that kind of like. That's crazy. Added to her legend a bit. And whatever they, well, actually, this is an interesting sidetrack point because, you know, it wouldn't be our podcast, was it? You know, when they did those executions, supposedly only one of the people on that line actually had a live bullet. One or two people. Yeah. That's what they even did in um, the executions today when they do that. Yeah, so you don't. So as a person that's no one knows, when you execute, yeah. execute, yeah, like you're trying to execute somebody, you're that person with the gun. Uh, you don't know if you're actually the one that killed, you know, did the execution. The idea yeah. is you can, you can rationalize it. Oh, it wasn't me. I probably it wasn't my bullet. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't my bullet because there's four of us standing here. We're all firing at this person, and only one bullet goes in. We don't know which one went in because three are not real. So that's an interesting side tidbit. But um, World War Two, I feel like World War Two is uh, that's when countries and allies uh, decide that, you know what, we, we need to utilize women. It's such a huge conflict that it would have been silly for them not to. So there's two intelligent uh, agencies. You have the British SOE, which stood for Special Operations Executive. Mm-hmm. And then you have the American OSS, which is the Office of Strategic Services. It's like the grandfather of the CIA. CIA, basically, yeah. It's what CIA was before it's called CIA. SOE, or the Special Operations Executive, the British version, was active in virtually every occupied country in Europe. They had native operatives in enemy countries. They aided resistant groups to monitor the enemy activity. I mean, these guys were all over the place as a spy network, and a lot of their spies were women. And then the OSS kind of overlapped those operations, right? But it also had operatives in a the Pacific theater. That was the, you know, the major distinction. Most of the times, these guys employed, I would say, ordinary women, you know, men and women that they would try to get to pass on information. Anyone, anyone they could find. I think the most famous American spy, female spy from World War II, I don't know if you, you, know, you agree with this, is Virginia Hall. Virginia Hall, yes. The, she was also known as the most dangerous allied spy, I believe, right? That was what she's she called. Was. Oh, the Germans had, like, literally made her the most, they actually made her the most wanted spy. Yeah. And they called her the woman with a limp or Artemis. Yeah, but she had a wooden leg. Yeah, she did. She had a wooden leg. I'm kind of getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But yeah. Virginia, Virginia Hall is intense, right? So born in Baltimore, Maryland, comes from a really privileged family, was like a super outdoorsy girl, 
attended fine schools, colleges. Uh, she wanted to be a diplomat. And in 1932, she lost part of her leg, right, in a hunting accident. She resigns from the State Department by 1939, which is the year World War II begins um, with Germany's attack on Poland. She was in Paris when this started, when the... She's an ambulance invasion. shot, right? Yeah, she's an, yeah, she's in the ambulance yeah. corps. Essentially, when the French government falls and the kind of fascist Vichy government in France takes over, she moves to England, right? And then she, when she moves to England, she somehow uses you know connections and gets involved with the SOE. They send her for training, and then they return her back to occupied France. She goes in and joins the French resistance as the British operative, and she's American. Yeah, we should mention that. But then the Nazis catch on to this resistance and she has to escape. So they said she escaped on foot through Spain, like yeah, mountains, it, climbing, crazy in, stuff. In the winter. Yeah, in the middle of winter while she has yeah. one leg. Outdoors. You know? So this was, she had that experience because that's not something that like anyone could just do. So then she returns to France. And essentially what she did in France is she kind of was the, I guess, the linchpin or the connector between the underground resistance movement and Britain. She was a um, radio. They discuss. Well, she goes to Britain. She escapes yeah. to Britain. Yeah, and like you said, she goes back to France. And but when she goes back to France, she disguises herself as a peasant woman with gray hair, dye her hair gray, and everything like that. Yeah. And like you said, she's that linchpin. She's basically like a radio operator. Yeah. She's monitoring German intelligence, organizing um, su- like drops of supplies. Yeah, for even them. after D Day, I mean, she's the even one that creates. Yeah. Yeah, she's the one that creates drop zones, like draws maps for them. Yeah. And she's also the one that goes from house to house and finds safe houses for a lot of these soldiers. So she kind of makes connections with locals. Networking. She, she's based, she's networking, and that's what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. monumental in the invasion, the U.S. invasion of, of France, you know, German-occupied France. It got to the point that she, you're right, she became infamous to the germans like they tried their best to capture her and what made it so difficult is the fact that she taught herself to walk without a limp yeah so they wouldn't be able to find her yeah because they knew her as the woman with the limp so she somehow taught herself with one leg to walk without a limp but like you said she would disguise herself all the time she was like the sherlock holmes at the time she just completely disguised herself and they just could not find her she was eventually awarded a bunch of medals rightfully Um, so yeah yeah, she was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross by General William Donovan for her efforts in France and Spain. Uh, it was the only award to any civilian woman in all of World War II. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and then after the um, war ends and OSS stops being OSS and becomes CIA, she kind of transitions for a little bit. She continues through OSS until CIA, like 1966, a couple years over, and then she transitions to the CIA, and then she retires. She she passed away in 1982, back in the United States. So crazy story. Yeah, absolutely. Again, one I think they should make like some like a little mini series about this. You know, I'm sure they have, but yeah, a better yeah, one, a newer one. Yeah, yeah, we're just late to the party here. Um, any other ones they have from World War II? I found a lot of other ones, but then they were not American. So if you want to, well, there's one other one that was Barbara uh, Lewers. Barbara okay. Lewers was um. She was a WAC, you know, Women's Army Corps initially. So the WACs would go into different towns and have these rallies to try to get women to join. So she joins. And while she's officially part of the Women's Army Corps, she actually winds up receiving a Bronze Star for her OSS work. She worked for the OSS and she would be instrumental in using German prisoners for counterintelligence, right? It was known as Operation uh, Sauerkraut. She actually trained them and was in charge of this. 
um, they would take German prisoners and they would turn them, you know, in promises of, hey, when war's over, you could come back and live in the United States kind of thing. And they would create these fake passports for them and essentially release them back uh, behind enemy lines, release them back to Germany to infiltrate German units and spread what was known as black propaganda about Adolf Hitler. So they would spread, you know, there would be leaflets and signs and other things that would just pop up randomly, you know, amongst German soldiers in their camps. And the Germans couldn't figure out what was going on. But really, it was these quasi-German soldiers that were really working, you know, through this Operation Sauerkraut for the OSS to spread as much doubt in the minds of German soldiers. Yeah, like, hey, you're going to lose. It's kind of like what they had that... um, Yeah, like Tokyo Rose in Japan. Tokyo Rose, that's what it was. They would play popular music on a radio that the American GIs could pick up. And you would have this American woman that would be working for the Japanese that would say, hey, you know, what do you think your sweetheart's doing back home? You know, she's probably with somebody else. She probably loves you. Yeah, Yeah, just kind of demoralize them. And Germany had the same same thing. Um, Yeah, it's very common. This This is what you did. I have one here. It was known as Churchill's favorite spy, mm-hmm. Krista Star- Starbeck. And <laughs> I'm saying that correctly, you would know a little bit more than I, I do. I would probably know a little bit more. Yeah, no, but that's good. Go ahead. Basically, though, she was a daughter of Polish royalty. Her mother was Jewish, so that kind of like also limited how far they could go, mm-hmm. right? the aristocrats. Um, but her father taught her everything, um, horsemanship, shooting. So she was really skilled outdoorsman, but she was her biggest skill was she was great at charming men, and she had all these admirers and stuff like that. It actually, wound up leading to her death. She was later, years later after after World War II, she was stabbed to death by one of her admirers. But um, yeah, but uh, what basically happened? She was overseas when the Germans invaded Poland. It's the beginning of World War II, and she kept on trying to enlist in the army, but she obviously couldn't do it because she was a woman. So she was in London. She presented a plan to the British Secret Service that she would ski into Nazi-occupied Poland, and she wanted to deliver propaganda. Um, she wanted like positive news about the fight against Hitler, the fuel of the resistance. Because remember, at this point, the Polish government fled the country, so the only way that the people in Poland were going to get any sort of positive information was from these spy networks or from these people smuggling this information in. And she actually convinced another Olympic skier Jean Marasquaz to escort her through the mountains from Hungary. And it is in the cold of winter. And um, they were just, they would just kill Germans. They basically just camped out in the woods, skied around and killed Germans. And the Germans, the following, it was a very cold winter. So the following spring, they found bodies all over the place. So they doubled their patrols the following winter because they knew that this spy network, these assassins were coming back. And she was obsessed with danger. She loved that taking like really dangerous missions, smuggling intelligence in and out of Poland. She actually at one point to evade execution and capture, she chewed her own tongue bloody to really? make it, to make it look like she had tuberculosis. They would just leave her alone and be like, uh, we, don't, we don't want to get that close to her because we, they don't want to catch tuberculosis. So that's what she would do. Just like make her tongue soup. She was just chewing her tongue bloody. Towards the end of the war, she found out that one of her um, lovers was – Pos was being held in this prison. So what she did is she would stay outside the prison, just sing and sing and sing until finally the guards were like, all right, what's going on? So they let her in. And then she lied saying she was related to a British diplomat. They said she was related to like Churchill or someone like that. And that she's saying, listen, you guys, listen, you guys know the reports, you know, the allies landed in France. They're going to be coming here soon. And the only way you're going to get mercy is if you release all these prisoners. And eventually they agree. They just let them all go. They let all these prisoners go at the mm-hmm. prison because she convinced them 
that she knew people and it was the only way they were going to be saved. And um, later on, Churchill's da- daughter, Sarah, wanted to make a movie about uh, Krishna, Krishnana. And um, they asked her, like, why do you want to do it? And it was because she said that was my father's favorite spy. And that's kind of how she kind of got that, that name. Churchill loved her, like loved the information that she was, all the stuff that she was doing. Um, there's actually a few women, American women, that participated and work for the OSS, uh, but not as any traditional sense as spies. They just work for the agency itself, and they did some really interesting things. And some of them are actually kind of famous, at least you became famous afterwards. One was uh, Julia Child. She eventually becomes a very famous uh, American like cooking teacher. Author. Julia Child, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's right. She was a yeah. woman. Remember yeah, that? Yeah. So, while she was trying to get into the wax, they turned her down. Uh, because they said she was too tall. She was 6'2". Yeah. So they're like, well, they're, she's like, well, I want to help my country. And they're like, well, you're too tall. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? So she instead applies for the OSS in Washington, D.C. and gets in. Okay, remember, this is, this is a woman that becomes very famous for cooking. She spearheads this workable shark repellent that was used by downed flight crews, eventually even for U.S. space missions as well, like water landings. She worked for the OSS. You know how like James Bond has a bunch of these gadgets? Like she created a gadget, basically, which was a shark repellent. Yeah, if you get shot down. And eventually, you know, obviously she, you know, becomes a famous cooking TV personality. Uh, Marlene Dietrich, she was actually a, a famous actress at the time. She was of German descent, and she participated in these radio broadcasts that were aimed at Germany, something when we were talking about, but from our perspective. And she would say them in German, basically, and she would spread this propaganda that kind of was devised by the OSS to have just lower German soldiers' morale and kind of promote defection and stuff. So she was like our version of Tokyo Rose towards Germany. Everything in German, even though she, you know, she was a German American. That would kind of make the soldiers want to quit and go home. She was awarded the Medal of Freedom by the United States. Then there was Elizabeth McIntosh. Uh, she was a war correspondent, right? And just an independent journalist. But then she joins the OSS uh, right after Pearl Harbor and she becomes instrumental in the OSS this deception where they would intercept postcards uh, by Japanese, you know, from Japanese troops and vice versa and their family members. And she would rewrite them. So she would kind of, I guess, manage information between Japanese soldiers and their homes and vice versa and tell the Japanese soldiers that what was happening at home was much worse than it really was, which I don't know how you could say that because we were bombing craziness out of Japan at this time. Of course, it was bad. She actually intercepted and detected orders of numerous sorts. Uh, chief among them was a copy of the Imperial Order discussing terms of surrender which was um, then this, you know, disseminated to the Japanese troops, try to show like, hey, your leaders are thinking of giving up. But Hedy Lamar, famous actress, uh, if anyone ever has the time to look up Hedy Lamar, I mean, extremely beautiful woman and often kind of viewed as, well, you're just not that bright. But in World War II, um, valuable contribution to the intelligence division. She actually co-produced an anti-jamming device for torpedoes. That would um, help. Yeah, so like it was like a clever way of like frequency hopping. So it prevented the you know interception of American military messages as well. She basically created Bluetooth, like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi as we know today. Look it up, guys. It's she was the pioneer in creating that, and then eventually that technology, the rights to it were stolen, essentially stolen from her because she was a woman. Until the end of his, her life, she tried to fight for the fact, like, no, I co-created the technology that became. Hmm. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. I guess we could kind of finish up with some modern spies. Do you have anything good for anything modern? Well, probably one of the ones that I wouldn't say the most recent, obviously, but one that 
is fairly recent, if you want to just fast forward a bit, would be um, Anna Chapman. And this is one that actually was uh, captured not that far from us, right in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, actually. She was basically a Russian intelligent agent. Um, she's also a model, even in Russia now. So it kind of gives you an idea. She's, um, she was known as that. And when she was caught, like all those late night TV shows, like Jimmy Kimmel and stuff like that, were saying, like, you know, why are we sending her this one back to Russia and stuff like that? Because <laughs> she, was, she was, you know, red hair, very attractive. Um, but she uh, came to the United States because she was married to um, a British person through marriage. That's how she was able to get into the United States. And quickly was having an affairs and stuff like that. And she was basically trying to infiltrate business and governments, um, business and government companies mm-hmm. and get insider information. And then she in New York city and a couple of theirs. And she eventually got caught in 2010 and um, was arrested conspiracy. And she pled guilty to uh, the actual charge conspiracy to act as an unlawful agent of a foreign government. And um, she was then um, exchanged. Basically, they caught a, um, when I say they, the Russians caught a bunch of our spies in Russia. So we just kind of did a, it's known as a 2010 Russia US prisoner swap. They just kind of swapped prisoners. She went back. It wasn't just her, it was, a, it was a, several um, younger, attractive women that were sent over here to basically their job was to start dating or get to know businessmen politicians but also the sons of these businessmen and politicians that's really like get to know the sons the nephews and then work your way to the actual like head of the family type of things and get information from them inside information on trades and stocks inside information on like government dealings it was more business than it was many military secrets Uh, but she eventually gets sent back to russia in 2010 and she becomes kind of a celebrity she becomes a catwalk model in russia she um she works for a television series, creates her own television series for a while. And now she runs the um, youth council as a government employee. Wow. Um, yeah, see, there's still, there's still female spies out there. And there's probably so many female spies and male spies. If you're a female spy listening in this podcast, just you know, let us know. Yeah, of course. We're not going to tell anybody. We just, we just want to know. <laughs> we'll just make another podcast about it. All right. For more things, she actually, um, she actually proposed to um, Edward Snowden on Twitter. Oh my goodness! So, Can't but he did not respond. <laughs> All right. I mean, again, I thought it was kind of interesting. It's a part of history. It's a part of these stories. I know we don't have time to go, so we we are missing so many others. Yeah, I mean, again, this is kind of like, we're just kind of highlighted some of the more known ones, you know, and not necessarily known that none of these names you would kind of they're not like James Bond. You know what I mean? There's not. They're not that popular, but they should be, and and perhaps maybe one day they will be. But I think that it was very it was important for us to bring awareness to the fact that there's a lot of famous women spies out there. You know, there's a saying that behind every great man is a is a greater woman. Yes, this this is some proof about it right here. Yeah, yeah, right there. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed our podcast. Check out the website History Teachers Talking Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. Take it easy. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com.
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continue to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.